This is the Money and Politics Podcast, and I'm Andrew Blumenfeld. One of the fastest changing landscapes in politics today is digital media. Whether it's connected TV or ads on social media, there are more ways than ever to use for reaching voters. But what about donors? We can certainly point to some high-profile examples where national campaigns are able to leverage digital tools to raise astronomical sums. But what about everyone else? What are the real opportunities that exist here, and what are the limitations? To answer these questions and many more, I'm speaking today with Bill Gordon. He's the CEO of Yosemite Consulting, and that is a digital media trading desk and strategy firm focused on progressive causes. But first, a message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, Call Time AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy to use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. So I'm here now with Bill Gordon. Bill, thanks so much for joining me. Nice to be here. Before we get too far into this conversation about digital media, which I'm excited to have, let's start with you and just having you share with folks a little bit about yourself and how it is that you found your way into politics. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. My name's Bill Gordon. I'm the CEO of Yosemite Consulting. I've been in politics since 2008. I kind of came in on that initial Barack Obama campaign in 2008 and worked at the DNC a little bit after that for the 2010 cycle, spent some time at agencies, spent a few years running digital programs for a few nonprofits, Americans for Tax Fairness and Compassion and Choices, which was pushing for medical aid and dying legislation. Then in 2018, I started Yosemite Consulting based out of Sacramento, and we are digital media buyers. And so tell folks a little bit more about what that means to be a digital media buyer. What's some of the work that Yosemite does? Sure. So I think that the best way to think about us is, well, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. But, uh, you know, we're kind of analogous to TV buyers insofar as that our specialty is purchasing and securing the media that we want against targeted voters in districts. So we primarily focus on voter contact using digital advertising. And, you know, just listening to the show, I know that there's been a lot of discussion about how that is sort of separate and apart from small dollar fundraising. And it is actually quite different in, in the way you pay for it and the way that you think about it and the way that you target it. So we specialize in voter contact. And you're talking here about things like I'm always amazed, you know, what used to maybe have clearer lines of demarcation between what was kind of considered traditional older media, you know, your televisions, your radio, and sort of new media, getting a Facebook ad, that kind of thing, a little blurrier now, for my own understanding, you know, does it fit under your umbrella to target folks, for example, if they're they see an ad when they're watching Hulu or if they're watching YouTube TV? Is that TV ads or is that you guys? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, depending on how you're buying your media, it could be either. Oh, so, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you're talking about connected television and YouTube separately, but connected television and partners like Hulu, we certainly buy a lot of that. And that can be a great complement to a TV buy. Right. So you can package it in with a TV buy as part of a connected TV add on, mm-hmm. or you could think about it as part of your digital media buy and, you know, think about it alongside your standard pre roll. I think there's really no way, there's no wrong way to think about it as long as you're doing it. 
it's just a, an incredible proliferation of these channels. And actually, you know, as we're recording this conversation, we're now on the other side of, you know, the bulk of at least the 2020 election. I know there's going to be some more left to do there. But I'm curious, especially given obviously that we've seen this proliferation of digital media tools and and also that it was just a unique year by pretty much any measure, not least of which the fact that all of these sort of field operations had to rethink how they were going to reach voters in the wake of the pandemic. All of those things, and I'm sure many, many more, just what are some of your reflections on what worked successfully in the digital media space in 2020 and what maybe not so much? Yeah, well, I'll reiterate that it was a very weird year (laughs) for a number of reasons. But I think that, you know, Digital is really interesting because it sits in the middle of a lot of well-established campaign verticals. And I've been doing this long enough to remember what it was called, new media, before they Mm -hmm. started calling it digital. Mm -hmm. So certainly it's started, it's really found a place, but it sits kind of in the middle of this triangle between your communication strategy, your earned media strategy, your fundraising strategy, your grass, you know, your, your small dollar strategy. And also your organizing strategy, right? So your online to offline, offline to online volunteer communication is part and parcel of digital. And then there's also your paid strategy, right? Where you're thinking about it in the terms of advertising, which is going to be you're in the conversation with your direct mail vendor and your TV vendor and your SMS people. And so, you know, there's a lot of places where digital slots in. And so when field became, I think, untenable for a lot of campaigns this cycle because they were, I think, very rightfully moving away from, they were listening to public health guidance. You know, we saw a lot of that organizing move over into digital. Certainly the role of email, of being able to connect with people on Zoom calls. You know, I consider all of that digital, but it is also, to your point, organizing. So yeah, it's just been a wholesale move over. And I, I think that it's it's been really tough, but a lot of the great organizers in field departments have found ways to connect with volunteers because there really is no substitute for that one-on-one in-person interaction. So, you know, they made the best they could of a really tough situation. And kind of adding to that tough situation, but perhaps good for the ecosystem, I don't know, I'm curious on your take on even on that, there are new limitations on some of these channels, right? Specifically, I'm thinking of the social media channels, I'm specifically thinking about Facebook and Twitter, that kind of went out of their way to behave differently than they did in 2016. And to put more guardrails, more restrictions, I mean, Twitter, obviously, an extreme example saying just we're not going to do political advertising. So I guess twofold question here is, A, what's just your take on whether or not that actually is a positive thing for like a healthy functioning ecosystem and democracy? And B, you know, how did you see campaigns react to that well or poorly? It's a great question. I think that, you know, Facebook and Twitter the problem with those platforms is not one of advertising necessarily. I think the problem is more fundamental to their algorithms that surface, you know, clickbait content inside a newsfeed and just the sort of natural direction towards sensationalism. I think that removing digital advertising, which after 2016 became a lot more vetted by humans and tied back to individuals in the United States. That wasn't really a problem. I understand their desire to have a blackout period. And as I understand it, they might lift that relatively soon. Hmm. But certainly, I think that it forced campaigns to think about a world without Facebook and what that Mm -hmm. would look like. And I think from a voter contact perspective, it's okay. 
You know, Facebook is a great tool in the toolbox, but so is connected TV, so is high impact display, so is private marketplace standard pre-roll. There's lots of ways that we can get in front of voters in district. I think it's a more pernicious problem if Facebook were to go away from a fundraising standpoint, because Facebook and Instagram really still are the best platforms to grow an email list and convert those people into donors. Let's actually talk about that then for a minute. I know you alluded to it before, and it's certainly something, as you noted, we've discussed on on this program before, which is the distinction between using these kind of broadcast communication tools, these digital media tools for voter outreach and mobilization versus for fundraising. Well, let me start with this premise. I think a growing number of campaigns and candidates want to imagine the digital fundraising will make up an ever larger piece of their ultimate budget. What do you say to that? I mean, if a candidate or campaign kind of proposes to you, I am going to go raise kind of hand over fist money from digital fundraising, what are the things that you're telling them? Okay, well, then you better have this, this and this in place or no, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I would say that the most important things that you want to kind of arm a campaign with before they embark on an online fundraising effort is... You want to start very small and test the waters. It can get extremely expensive very quickly. And you're going to be in the red for a little while. And you have to be able to, I think, pivot and change quite a bit. So I think the most important piece of advice that I would give to a campaign is to make sure that the math works. Right When we're thinking about online fundraising campaigns being brought in via Facebook advertising, for example, which is a very standard sort of pathway, right? We get somebody to give us their email off of a Facebook petition. We convert that email into an email welcome series where they receive a bunch of messages for the first week or two or three. Some percentage of those people receive just enough emails in the right combination that they convert over into donors. And then you have to essentially pay yourself back for the initial investment into whatever you know month list you have. So if you spend $10,000 trying to build a 3,000, 4,000-person email list in the month of August, you need to figure out how many donors you're going to get out of that 3,000 and what their lifetime value is. At that point, you can also think about what a payback window looks like. So if you spend 10000 to acquire these 3,000 emails, maybe you get 30 donors from them. Those 30 donors need to pay back $10,000 in X amount of months. And you, know, you want to calibrate your fundraising program to not extend the payback window past election day. So if you can't pay back inside your, inside your initial investment before election day, then you should switch over and stop running acquisition ads. Well, and, and I think that time element is... It's a very interesting one, and it's definitely one I think that potentially gets overlooked. And to your point, there's a firm end on that, right? At the very least, you want to make sure that those dollars are back in the door prior to election day. But I think it probably also speaks to a lesson that campaigns might want to take away, which is you probably want those dollars back well before election day, right? You probably want to have made some of that investment back and then some with enough time to put those dollars to work doing something else. And so I guess that all just leads to one potential conclusion, curious if you agree, which is that if this is something that you're going to do, you probably need to start pretty early. Yes. And I think that starting early is is kind of the order of the day if you're going to do it. And I think that you know you also have to think about it as 
a holistic communication strategy where it doesn't start and end with Facebook ads turning people into donors with an automated process. I mean, sometimes it does for very like a few campaigns, but you know, you need to have staff that are thinking about these emails. That's why there's a number of firms out there, especially because of the difficulty of growing these lists organically now. You know, it used to be a lot easier. It's quite difficult now to convert these people into donors and have it make sense. Again, with the math, and I'll just give you some quick math, like a 50 cent cost per click. So you pay Facebook 50 cents every time somebody clicks on your ad that drops you onto a petition page. And then one in 10 people sign the petition. So a 10% conversion rate. The cost for that email is $5, right? It's, it's 50 cents times the conversion rate. So if you're getting emails for $5 and one in a hundred of them convert into donors, your average cost per donor is now $500, which is extraordinarily high. So very small changes. You know, if you bump up your conversion rate by, you know, if you can double your conversion rate, you can cut the cost of a new donor in half. And so that's why really well-funded campaigns spend so much time on optimization and scaling in the direction of, of what works from a testing perspective, because it's all about reducing the cost per new donor and increasing the lifetime average value of a donor. So there's a number of firms that sort of focus on that. But because that is, I think, a very tall order, you're also seeing a proliferation of list swapping and, you know, other types of ways of getting emails in the door, list rentals, but it still broadly rests on an email program. So if you're going to start an digital fundraising small dollar program, I really think that you have to have an email program that can support it. Because once these people are in the door, they're hot leads, but they cool quite quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it also, I mean, I think implicit in all of that, right, is one of the reasons you have to bring the cost per donor down, aside from the fact that that's, that, that sort of would be good in, in any context. It's sort of especially crucial because we're talking typically about donors, correct me if I'm wrong here, who are not likely to be major donors, right? That maybe you're more likely to find someone who sees you through a Facebook ad, signs up for your petition, takes your welcome series, stays in your email list long enough to go, yep, I'm going to chip in that 25 bucks, that five bucks, maybe that 50 bucks. But you're not necessarily talking about your $1,000 donors, your $2,800 donors. And so if that cost per donor gets too high too quickly, it's not long before it's eclipsed whatever you're going to be expecting to get back from these donors. Is that right? Or are we seeing more and more donors of all capacities, you know, be converted through these kinds of digital means? You know, I can't speak about it so much on the campaign side, but when I was in nonprofits and we would convert a large donor off of an ad, sometimes we'd have a friendly scrum with the major donor folks <laughs> in the other in the other department because that donor would more often than not be known to them. And they just decided to make that conversion via an ad that they saw. And you know, then you get to argue about attribution and who gets yeah. to take credit for it. But you know, I don't have a problem with that, and I, I certainly see more and more donors certainly this year giving online. And as long as you have a record of them before and you can think about your fundraising holistically, I don't think that there should be sort of two teams working in silos. Sometimes your major donors want to donate online, and sometimes small donors can be upsold into major donors if they meet other criteria. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think some of the most clever things I've seen campaigns do actually is a very intentional marrying of these strategies and even going as far as like having their universe of call time donors that they are calling through be chased by digital ads or even be warmed up before they get them on the phone with digital ads just to sort of create I don't know, an aura of momentum and kind of prime the messaging a little bit again, either before or after the actual hard ask is made of that significant amount. So I think the more, and this kind of maybe speaks to the proliferation of media channels that exist, the more we sort of recognize that, you know, a donor, a person, a voter is living this very multi-dimensional life where they're receiving all these very multi-dimensional messaging channels, the, they're probably the better rather than try and imagine they all exist either in this one particular channel or another. I think that's right. But I think that you also you know, have to remember that quite a few of the donors that you will get in a fundraising and online donation solicitation campaign are going to be donors for lots of campaigns, Mm -hmm. right? These are people who are on many email lists, including campaign email lists, the DCCC list, their favorite nonprofits, and it's a crowded ecosystem. And I think that that's also important for folks to remember is that, you know, they're getting a hundred emails from multiple campaigns when you get up to end of quarter and trying to stand out in that crowded ecosystem to donors that are receiving lots of solicitations in their email is really important. And I think that, you know, volume has been shown to be increasingly like very important. More money mm-hmm. comes from more emails. There's a trade-off there of unsubscribe lists, you know, higher unsubscription rates, but you know you can turn through it if you have enough money going in to be in the positive with it. You know, sixty days, thirty, sixty day paybacks. What do you think about the? I don't even know the the longer term sort of expectations about this quickly changing ecosystem are and exactly the things you just spoke about. I, I've had guests on in the past who have thought about you know a world in the not too distant future where you know, I think about races that happen this cycle, when you're spending $100 million on a Senate race, like there's, there's sort of diminishing returns, I would assume on whatever incremental dollar you can spend on yet another email or yet another TV ad or, or any of those things. And I'm just curious, do you have any sort of sense of where you think, I don't know, how you would coach your campaigns, your clients to think about what the trade offs are between sort of just going for squeezing every last dollar or even well, on the voter outreach side, just trying to get in front. Of, is there a diminishing return? Is there a worry about whether or not someone will be burned out on a channel before we even get to 2022? People will have just completely given up on opening their emails. <laughs> you know, I, I it's something I've been thinking about for years. And I think that a number of us have been kind of talking about the tragedy of the commons, right, where it becomes such a crowded ecosystem and the incentives Mm -hmm. all sort of point towards more and more and more and more that you might eventually turn off a base of of small dollar donors. But, you know, in reality, the opposite has happened, right? We've seen record small dollar donations in the 2018 midterms. 2020 obviously was fueled by enormous small dollar donations. And what I think is really interesting about it is how these donations are being allocated. So, you know, I would caution people carte blanche that if you're running for a state legislative seat, it is very hard to get the type of national fundraising scale that you need for your race to be, 
you know, tagged as one that gets donors from New York and San Francisco and LA and Miami and, you know, Austin. So it's very hard for the state legislative races because small dollar donations have become so nationalized, you know. Mm-hmm. Anybody who runs against Mitch McConnell is going to raise a lot of money. Anybody who runs against Ted Cruz is going to raise a lot of money. Anybody who runs against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is going to raise a lot of money. And that's because small dollar donations aren't sort of directed by party elites into the races that they think are the most competitive. It's a lot more of an emotional connection that happens between a person and the campaign if, if they can frame it properly. So to answer your question a little bit more directly about the diminishing returns, The diminishing returns are really easy to identify in a fundraising context because it's just when you stop making money, right? (laughs) And, you know, every campaign is sort of naturally going to realize that at some point they put in more money, they can't scale, the cost per clicks go up, the donations go down, and then you reach some sort of break-even point and you cap out there. For many campaigns, they, they can't make online donations ever make sense. So I would suggest fundraising and putting in a bunch of reserve buys on your persuasion media, right? Like you might save $50,000 by putting in a reserve buy right after the primary that would be greater in value than however much money you were going to raise via small dollar. Yeah. That diminishing returns, I think, is certainly absolutely right for an individual campaign. And back to sort of where you started that answer, I was thinking maybe too lofty in terms of on even an entire channel over time. And to your point, that's not what we've seen so far. We saw record-breaking fundraising along these channels in 18 and same thing in 20. I do wonder, and obviously there's probably no real way to know this until we just live it, but I think about, I'm getting a little off topic here, but I think about text messages, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, like text messages just were not a tool that were leveraged by campaigns only just a couple of cycles ago. And I think in just a couple of cycles, I mean, let me be sort of blunt here. I think politics like broke text messages. (laughs) Like, Not that they don't work and not that they haven't yielded results, which is why, of course, to your point, the incentive was there to continue to invest heavily in them. But the difference between sort of how the lay person, the average voter, the average donor thought about getting a text message just a couple of cycles ago versus how they feel now and how I suspect they will feel in 2022, 24, et cetera, mm-hmm. is just so dramatically different that, that you do wonder, you know, did we just sort of set an entire channel on fire too quickly? Because yes, we were able to get some returns now. Again, maybe I'm thinking too lofty there because it's, you know, whose job is it to protect the integrity right. of the text message channel? But <laughs> Right. It's, it's, it's an interesting point. I actually always think about the statistics from the very first banner ad. The very first banner ad was in like 1995 and it was an AT&T ad on Wired.com. You can Google this. Just type in first banner ad ever and they have like the GeoCities site that it was displayed on. And it had a click through. I think the creative was something like, you're going to click here. <laughs> it was really, really first banner ad ever creative. Right. And it had a click-through rate of, I think, like 46%. Something absolutely out of bounds for what we would consider today. I mean, you know, in programmatic display, we look at a click-through rate of, of 0.1%. And we say, yeah, it's doing pretty well. So certainly, you know, when it's 480 times better, you, you just can't keep a good channel secret I think sure. is the is sort of the the sad reality of it is you know it was certainly the the click open rates and the click read rates on SMS in 16 and 18 were a lot higher than they were in 20 but you know it's been utilized by a lot more people so maybe there is an incremental benefit to it being more widely disseminated on the other hand though you know it does certainly give 
Congress a reason to legislate and for there to be some some additional you know rulemaking. And I think that that's always something that people that kind of think about the edge of voter contact techniques always need to think about is is the sort of regulatory landscape and the technology landscape. You know, I think that moving forward to your earlier point, you know, technology browsers, Chrome, iOS 14 are going to make it a lot harder for digital media companies like mine to target voters, right? Because of increasing privacy concerns. And, you know, we're actually, we're all for that, but it does mean that we're going to have to change the way that we think about targeting voters in district and certainly out of district as well when you're following people around for retargeting ads yeah, at a more fundraising landscape. And shifting gears just a little bit to the to the way that campaigns are spending money on digital, we've sort of touched on it throughout from the sort of macro of, okay, they needed to invest here, especially in light of, you know, field programs that couldn't be deployed during coronavirus to some very specific kind of tactical, this is how you should be thinking about the sort of ROI of your, at least on the fundraising side of your digital programs. But I'm struck by the fact that that you still have a pretty big diversity in the way that campaigns do or do not prioritize spending on their digital media. And I know that that cycle over cycle, I hear people in this space kind of make that point that they still can't believe that there are still some who don't have the level of investment that they think is warranted. So I guess let me start there. Is that your take? Do you think kind of generally speaking that the way campaigns are spending and thinking about spending on their digital media has like matured and is now appropriate? Or do you still think that there's a lot to learn there about how they prioritize their dollars? I think that, you know, if we break up digital into thinking about it from a small dollar fundraising acquisition perspective, there's been a lot of maturity in the space, a lot of actors who've been able to get it right and adapt with the changing ecosystem. And I would say that there's definitely room to continue to grow and innovate in the field. But on the persuasion side, I think that we have seen cycle over cycle and increased investment in digital as a main persuasion channel. And that's, you know, happened across political media buying over the decades. Direct mail was was really effective, radio, TV, and digital because of its its maturity, I think is becoming sort of an increasingly larger percentage of campaign buys. What is interesting though is the parity between the political world and say private corporations where more or less 50% of their outreach is done on digital media channels in the democratic space, which is the only space I can speak about. You know, it's, it's closer to 15 to 30%. Hmm. I think that oftentimes, you know, you can get to this place where campaigns think that if they have enough money to go up on TV, that's what they're going to do. But it's, it's a good strategy to think about how digital fits into everything else that you're doing. Because if you're running a mail program, you can, take that same mail file and run ads to that file. It's very targeted. If you're running a broadcast or a cable spot, you you can use digital to buy connected TV to increase your reach into your targeted audience. And you can even buy it on GRPs. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's, it's growing and it's still a little lagging behind the private sector. And I'd like to see it pick up a little bit, but certainly we've seen a lot more investment in digital cycle over cycle. The only other thing that I'll point out is that this cycle in particular was the cycle where connected TV really came into its own as Mm. a usable channel for races sort of sub-state level. 
in 18 and in 16, this was a very nascent channel. There was not a ton of inventory, but connected TV and advertising supported video on demand is 98% completion rates. It's essentially a TV commercial in your home. It's just being played on the Roku channel. Mm -hmm. So I think that that has been a real bridge to some campaigns that can visualize what a what a TV buy looks like, but the idea of digital media is still a little ephemeral. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me from even just a psychological level. I think the way you just said it is like it bridges in their minds because they can visualize it, right? I think there's a lot of bias against a lot of types of advertising that people presume that they are not affected by themselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there's something about being forced to confront during a commercial uh, break of your favorite television show, an ad that people go, okay, well, I, I, I can tell you the 17 different mascots of Geico, so something must be working <laughs> with the Geico TV ads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to piggyback a little bit off that, and to, I'm going to ask you to react to something more specific that it stuck with me, I'll put it that way. The AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in the very immediate aftermath of 2020, said that one of her reactions to some of the losses that the Democrats had in the House was because, you know, she kind of looked through their their spending, she looked through their reports, and she just felt like that they still weren't adequately investing in digital, or at least not investing in it in a way that sort of like met her expectations about what would be successful. So I am curious just about that from your expert point of view. Is that your take? And if it is, just any kind of details you can add to that analysis? Mm-hmm. I think the Congresswoman was reacting to the idea that a lot of advertising and a lot of persuasion advertising in district is still very much focused towards likely voters and you know your 404s and your your independent persuasion universes and there is a younger engageable electorate that can be moved into a mobilization phase with effective digital media but i think it goes beyond just where you're allocating your paid dollars i think that to do digital well broadly, it requires a principal or a candidate to care and to participate in those Facebook lives and those Instagram lives. And, you know, you don't have to be AOC on Twitter, but can you be Chuck Grassley? Mm-hmm. And I think that having that authentic voice and really being able to forge a connection makes the returns on digital all that much better. So, in a broad sense, I, I do agree with. With AOC, insofar as that she is pointing out that we are underspending on digital relative to other verticals and relative to the campaigns that she herself has seen work. But I, I want to be generous and, and charitable to my friends, the TV buyers and the direct mail buyers and the digital buyers who understand that you know it is a complex ecosystem and you know races can be very different. And if you're trying to turn out some people that can be most efficiently turned out by broadcast, then you know I would defer to the consultants in those races. But certainly as a digital media buyer, we are full-throated in our endorsement of more digital media. Sure. I'll ask you just as a final question here, and then I'll let you go. But it's, again, we've a little bit touched on this throughout with the discussion of the Facebook blackout of ads in the last couple of weeks before the election that has actually persisted, at least until, you know, we're sitting here recording this today. It's still is true that the Twitter prohibition on political ads, and then you also reference that there are changes to 
even within sort of some of these systems, the browsers, exactly, the the operating system. So, and then you you alluded to the potential, although I'm not sure if anything in particular, but just the general potential of legislation to just further protect people's privacy that usually comes at the expense of targeting. So Mm -hmm. I guess I want to kind of bundle that up and kind of as a final question here for you, just ask you to respond to this idea of what do you see coming down the road for people in your line of work? What do you see given the changing landscape, but also the obviously ever-growing technological capacity of this space? Mm -hmm. As you look to 2021 and beyond, what are some things you're excited about? What are some things that you're maybe even nervous about? Just from an expert's perspective, what should we be looking at? Sure. I think that if privacy, either from a regulatory standpoint, legislative standpoint, or a technology standpoint, that is to say, browsers themselves instituting regulations and restrictions on how you can target voters and, and individuals. You know, as we as we confront that environment, I think that we're going to see a movement back to, I would say, a more traditional form of advertising, which is to say, contextual-based advertising, where we're targeting based on geographies and interests and maybe some light geo-demo targeting. But the one-to-one voter match stuff might go away. And if it does, we need to be, of course, able to see what is available in its place, get to the closest approximation to that. And there's great models that exist. It's how you buy cable, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you lose the ability to target past, say, a geography, you're still going to have a better ability to target than cable because you can target at the zip code level. But I think that quality of inventory at that point matters. You know, you want to buy and have relationships with a number of publishers that can secure good inventory so you know that you're getting certain scale and reach into an audience in a zip code that over-indexes with your likely voter model or your, your persuasion or GOTV model. And you know, run it that way. And then it becomes a lot more of a compliment to, say, a, a TV campaign and less of a compliment to a direct mail campaign or an analog to that. So that's on the persuasion side. I think that we're also going to see a continued blurring of the way that you can buy TV. I think that broadcast and cable and connected television are going to continue to kind of merge. And we're going to see either consolidations in the field or we're going to see people really offering the same product from different ends. Because it's really a great product. Connected television is it's fantastic and it is, you know, it can be close, you know, it is addressable. So mm-hmm. that's really good. From the fundraising side, you know, I would be interested to see if the enthusiasm sticks up on the Democratic side after Trump's off the ballot. I mean, certainly Georgia doesn't feel like Trump's off the ballot. But, you know, there will be a number of special elections next year. So I'd look to, say, New Jersey and some of the specials out of California to see how Democrats are reacting to a Biden presidency. Yeah. Very interesting. And I hadn't really as much thought about it in these terms, but I've talked with a lot of folks about how just one of the many factors of kind of hyperpartisanship and hyperpolarization is the sort of siloed nature of everyone's media. And I just wonder, I know I said the last question was the last, but I'll make this one the actual last. Do you think that that would have any impact? I mean, to your first point, if if now an advertisement can't just appeal to you and maybe whoever is exactly like you across the country to get you to chip in 25 bucks, but it has to be appealing to you and the person who lives next door and the person who mm-hmm. lives within you. I mean, am I being Pollyannish to think maybe that would help? <laughs> I, no, I mean, I think that's... A hope in a way, right? The idea that hyper targeting 
can, in effect, create these echo chambers. You know, I, I don't know if it's causal, but it certainly is a feedback loop. So, yeah, I think that if we if we can start to create ads that appeal to you know multiple types of people, you know, that might help. But I will say that there is something on digital media and the ability to target that's often overlooked when we talk about the discourse, which is that it gives a lot of power and voice to campaigns to talk to traditionally underrepresented communities. So the ability to create a spot and put it in front of a say, a Latino audience in a zip code or a basket of zip codes that otherwise only has a 15% you know, population of Latinos, but they're reliably Democratic voters, or you have a persuasion universe inside your Latino universe, you know, having the ability to talk to those underrepresented communities and target them, I think can be a good way of making sure that those communities are represented and spoken to. Because if you remove the ability to target them, sometimes you're going to default back to this lowest common denominator creative. And, you know, I think that that's where we've been in the Democratic Party. And I think that a lot of the the success that we've seen in the last two, four years of women candidates and candidates of color has sort of shown that reaching out to these communities and there is a lot of energy there. So to your point, I hope, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I hope that if we get rid of hyper-targeting, we'll, we'll have to make different spots. But certainly, we're always going to be able to send out mail to an address. Sure. So I don't think it's going away anytime soon, unfortunately. Well, I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Definitely an interesting field, I think, as I mentioned sort of there at the end, the combination of just how fast changing we are as a society in responding to this kind of media, our habits change so fast, our regulation, both like you know, governed and also sort of self-policing of these tech tools. And then just the fact that we're talking about technologies that themselves are evolving so quickly, it makes it no doubt one of the more interesting spaces in the political world and beyond. So thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all of that great insight. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the Call Time AI blog at www.calltime.ai. And follow us on Twitter at Call Time AI.